This week, an exit interview with Jamie Lickers, the lawyer who did the most cases and scored the most wins for Alibu applicants, as she leaves litigation for the corporate world. I'm Glenn Wheeler, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. This is episode 154, and a thank you to listeners like Mick Stevens, who support us via patreon.com forward slash Matters or via email transfer to mi'kmaq.matters at gmail.com. Well, I'll yoke. Almost as long as we've had a Halibut First Nation, we've had a legal struggle over who's in and who's out. And Jamie Lickers has been there since the first cases, House and Foster, and lately for Wells and Abbott. But no more. Jamie Lickers is leaving litigation for an executive position with CIBC. We spoke with her as she was packing up her legal files at Gowling's LLP, including the files she was handling for the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland. So, uh, Jamie, congratulations on your new job. Tell us uh, where it is and what you'll be doing. Thanks, Glenn. It's, it's actually a really interesting position, and I'm, I'm going into it with, with mixed emotions, obviously leaving the practice of law, but starting a, a new chapter. So as you know, I've taken on the role of Vice President of Indigenous Markets for CIBC. And that, that job is, is going to entail working with the wonderful team of people that are already at CIBC that are in the Indigenous Markets space. So that includes their Indigenous Trust Services, their Indigenous Lending, Indigenous Retail Banking, and the team is is really across the country in Canada, all the way from from Victoria to Montreal. So, much like my my existing role, there will be a fair bit of travel in my future. Um, whenever we get back to physically traveling for meetings and whatnot, but my home base will continue to be Hamilton, which is is really nice. I I get to keep my my 15 minute commute into what will be the CIBC office now instead of my Dowling's office. But other than that, not much is, is going to change from a, from a geographic perspective for me anyway. So uh, your job then is to find, uh, is to bring uh, CIBC to, to Indigenous clients, both uh, individual and business, band, uh, corporate, that sort of thing, I would think. That's right. It's, the, the role is, is twofold, and I'm sure... I will come to learn that there are many facets within those two big umbrella items once I start at the bank. But primarily the role is, is really focused on supporting the existing Indigenous markets team at CIBC, the people that fall into those, those departments, the trust department, the lending department, and retail banking. And to make sure that, that they have the resources and the support to keep doing what they've been doing for a number of years. And then, of course, the, the, the other side of, of the role primarily is, is business development and growth in the Indigenous markets for the bank. From, uh, from an ever, everyday person point of view, we do see stories on TV. Um, we had a story from, uh, from Winnipeg in the last year where... Indigenous people who go to the bank are often treated uh, not very well. They're treated with suspicion and are subjected to 
requirements that other people are not. Uh, would that sort of thing fall into your job, educating the bank to be respectful of uh, Indigenous clients? Definitely. And, and I think every major institution in Canada is really turning their mind towards how they can assist in reaching the TRC's recommendations and, and foster reconciliation in, in all facets, right? In, in economic development, in the financial space, in the legal space. So everyone is, is really becoming mindful of how we can all do better and how we can assist in, in fostering reconciliation in Canada. So the, the bank is obviously mindful of that as well and wanting to ensure that it's Indigenous clients, whether those are individuals or nations or, uh, you know, corporate or other entities controlled by Indigenous people in Canada, to make sure that they have access to the same services um, at the same standard and, and with the same, the same treatment, right? Um, they're all clients of the bank. And the goal, of course, is to deliver excellent client service, uh, regardless of, of the identity of the client. Now, let's go back uh, to uh, your history uh, uh, working for Halibut applicants. And um, It's a long one. It's a long yes, history. People will have remembered uh, the recent cases, but going back to uh, House and Foster, those... Um, have a 2015 date on them, the, the court decisions, but of course the work would have begun before then, and uh, I guess soon after the supplemental agreement. So um, uh, House and Foster, were uh, they were uh, people who were uh, faced obstacles over very technical things. One uh, forgot to sign a, a spot on the form, and the other one uh, was not given a few days to get in the birth certificate, and, and you were successful on House and Foster. But uh, how, did, uh, how did you get involved in this Halibut applicant work? Uh, did you just get a phone call one day from Dave Wells at the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland, or how did it all start? So uh, originally, it, it wasn't uh, Dave Wells who was uh, heading up the MFNAN. It was, it was a man by the name of Don Loader. And so we worked very closely with Don at the early stages of, of the House and Foster applications. And I was just thinking about this this morning. I've had I have had some file on my desk related to the Halapu enrollment uh, issue for the last seven years, really since since late summer, early fall of 2013, shortly after the signing of that supplemental agreement. And originally, with the House and the Foster applications, those were the only decisions that had been made. Uh, by the enrollment committee in any sort of a final way. So those, to my recollection, there were about 6,000 people who had been rejected on the basis of those technical irregularities with their applications. And in a sense, they were the easiest cases um, and, and they were not difficult to win in court because the idea that you could reject someone from band membership, deny them Indian status and access to constitutionally protected rights because they forgot to sign a box on a form. And from a legal perspective, we just, we felt that case was a slam dunk. Over the years, you've also been doing other Indigenous law cases. And, um, you know, we have uh, different struggles going on. And right now in, in Nova Scotia, we have the Mi'kmaq Fisheries case. And closer to you in Six Nations, we have uh, people trying to defend their land from um, being taken over by a residential subdivision. Uh, and then we have the struggle for membership at Halibut. Do you think 
have you found that people understand the the sort of the nature of the Alibu struggle and the uh, you know what the the emotional component of that, or does it seem a little bit um, different or maybe not as important as those other indigenous struggles? Well, it's difficult for me to be objective in this answer, Glenn, because I feel like I've been living and, and breathing the Halapu enrollment issues for so long. And every time I, I put my head into this file, whether it was on uh, Foster and House or whether it was the Wells case or the Abbott case, every time I have to put my head back into these files and I start going through the supplemental agreement and the guidelines and I, I look at the requirements for example for providing objective documentary evidence of self-identification which to me self-identification is an inherently internal thing it's uh, if you ask me to produce objective documentary evidence of my self-identification as as an indigenous person in Canada I, I don't know that I would have a document to give you but I've, I've been Aboriginal, I've known that I'm Aboriginal my entire life. And so the fact that I don't have a document doesn't, doesn't diminish that reality. You look at the requirements for proving your ongoing community involvement, right? With our, with our case in Abbott, <clears throat> Justin Abbott's brother was accepted into the band and has his status. They both live outside of Newfoundland and outside of Mi'kmaq communities in Newfoundland. And for my review of, of the applications and the documents, the key distinction between Justin and his brother is that Justin's brother was able to provide telephone records that demonstrated his continued contact with people in Newfoundland, family members and friends. And our applicant, Justin, primarily used Skype to communicate with his friends and family in Newfoundland. They have a very similar level of involvement and connection, but his brother could produce phone records and Justin uh, could not produce Skype records. It's amazing, isn't it, that your, uh, your identity is denied on the basis of whether you use Skype or uh, with the telephone. And that's, of course, an oversimplification because there are various other uh, hurdles and issues that we faced in, in the Abbott case. But that alone, every time I turn my mind to these issues and I, and I think about them, I'm just, I'm dumbfounded, really, that in 2020, when we're talking about reconciliation, and we're talking about the importance of cultural identity and cultural revitalization, that we're now telling people in Newfoundland who had their Indigenous identity denied for decades, we're now telling them that if they hunt and they fish and they berry pick, that's not good enough to show that you're Indigenous because other people who aren't Indigenous in Newfoundland, they do those things too. Right. It, it makes me, it makes me angry and upset. Yes. It's been, it's been a long road uh, for you and for the, uh, for the applicants. Um, we've had Foster and House, we've had Wells and we've had other cases. So now we have the class action and so far, even though we've had wins in the court, um, people are still, many, most people are still out there waiting. And uh, uh, David Rosenfeld, who's involved in the class action, said, to, said on a recent episode that Wells did not get us very much because the supplemental agreement stands uh, and along with it, the point system. So there's that. 
And there's just the, there's just time. So much time has gone by. So for, for applicants out there who um, might be getting discouraged, what, what can we say to them to perhaps encourage them? You know, I, I can't say that I blame the applicants for being discouraged. And I, and I know that many of them are discouraged. I've only been involved in this fight since 2013 and, and I'm tired and discouraged. And it's not, it's not my rights and my identity on the line. And of course the applicants have been living this for much longer, right? The denial stems, the denial of their existence and their recognition stems all the way back to 1949. The negotiations that the FNI started, uh, you know, that was, took you into the late seventies. Then we had the, the court, the first court case by FNI, and then about 20 years of negotiation with the federal government before we got an agreement in 2008. And then it's been a fight since 2008 for so many applicants. That's, that's 12 years. We're going on 12 years. And we still have, by my calculation, we still have at least three active pieces of litigation, which is the Abbott case, which is under appeal, the class action, and the case that's being adv advanced by the Friends of Halapu in, in the Newfoundland courts. So it might not mean much to applicants for, for someone like me to say, you know, hang on and, and, and keep up the energy on, on the good fight and don't give up hope. But I think Indigenous people generally across the country are getting really tired. You know, you mentioned the, the fishing disputes out east right now. You mentioned the land disputes in my home community in Caledonia. We, you know, we just last fall, we saw the disputes with the Wet'suwet'en. Um, Indigenous people are tired and they're angry. And, and the, the time for change is now. The time for true reconciliation is now. And someone has, has to keep pushing forward because if, if we all give up, then all of what we're fighting for will be lost. So what happens now on, you mentioned uh, Abbott. Abbott um, is, uh, the appeal is in the works uh, somehow. I know COVID has uh, slowed down everything, but uh, there will be an appeal of, of Abbott. But of course, you won't be in court. So who will be taking over uh, that and whatever other Halibu files uh, come to Galwings? It, it makes me sad to think that I, I won't be in court arguing that appeal. But, but the appeal is in, is in very good hands. So where we are right now with Abbott is uh, we, the, the applicants, the appellants on behalf of Abbott had filed our written memorandum of, of argument of fact and law with the federal court right before the court shut down because of the onset of COVID. And the onset of COVID resulted in an administrative suspension of timelines under various courts and their rules of procedure, including the, the federal court and the federal court of appeal. So we submitted our arguments. The timelines were, I think the following day, almost immediately timelines were suspended, which meant that the respondents, the, the FNI and the government of Canada did not have to file their written arguments until the timeline started running again, and that happened in September. So they have recently filed their arguments that they will rely on um, at the hearing of the appeal. And that really completed the last substantive step in the litigation, and the parties have now filed a requisition for a hearing date. 
So that has been filed with the court. The court could schedule that hearing at any time. It's very difficult right now. No one seems to have a sense of what sort of delays and backlog the court is is dealing because of dealing with because of the COVID shutdown. So it, it's really anyone's guess when that when that hearing date will be set. But as I said, the applicants are are in good hands. My my colleague Graham Reagan who assisted, um, he was, him and I were co-counsel on, on the house and the foster cases at the very beginning. Uh, so Graham and I handled those cases together. So he's, he's very knowledgeable and familiar with the history of the Halapu enrollment process and, and the litigation history. And he's been someone that I've, I've relied on from time to time for advice and a second opinion, even throughout the Wells cases and, and the Abbott case. And he consulted specifically on, on our drafting of our notice of appeal. So he reviewed the Abbott decision, agreed that there were some reasonable grounds to appeal. Um, so he's in a great position to take over the case and, and he's, not, he's not coming at it as someone who's, who's new and doesn't understand the history. Mm. Is Graham in Toronto? Graham is in our Ottawa office. Ah, so, and then uh, in terms of hearing location, I guess, it, as in the past, it could be Ottawa, Toronto, wherever you can get the, the earliest date. Right. And with, with the COVID delays and what I'm assuming is some sort of a backlog with the court, uh, I think the parties will be looking for the first available date. But I understand there are also travel restrictions that have to be kept in mind for um, certain of the council because of the, particularly because of the Atlantic bubble yes. for Mr. May, who is uh, counsel to the FNI there, there will be a lot of hoops that he has to jump through if he leaves the Atlantic bubble to argue a case in either Toronto or Ottawa or anywhere else for that matter, outside of, outside of the Atlantic region. Mm. Well, Jamie, um, good to talk to you. Um, well, Alan, for all your work over the years, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you during that time and all the best at the bank. Thanks, Glenn. I'll miss our little chats and, and all the best to your listeners. And, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be following these issues. I'll continue to follow them for the rest of my career and the rest of my life. And, and I, I really hope that um, one way or another, we get this sorted out and there's some, some justice and some fairness for the applicants. That's it for the program. If you listen to us via podcast, could you please like us on whatever platform you use? Help us get higher in those podcast listings. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Maltus. Maltus.